HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. This week, Meat and Three is taking you to market and all over the world, from Newfoundland to Tunisia. A lot of us think of, you know, the British Empire trading things like spices and sugar and silk. But you write that it actually began with salt cod from Newfoundland. (laughs) There was a port closure in Tunisia, which was horrible. I mean, it was months, boats just setting on the water waiting to go and they couldn't go anywhere. And we'll learn about how markets have changed, whether because of their customers or the climate. A few years ago, something around 10 years, it was totally different. It almost manifests itself to almost smelling like an old fire pit. When you Mm -hmm. put it out, it has that sort of charcoal-y smell to it. It's not good for wine. Join us this week on Meet and 3 for our global market tour. And don't forget to subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Elizabeth Minkley is an ex-art historian turned lifestyle and travel writer turned food blogger and culinary tour leader. She's the author of numerous books. The latest, The Italian Table, was released this past March. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. So what is the through line that got you from studying 16th century garden architecture to writing and thinking about food and food spaces? Um, well, it's not that big of a stretch, actually. Um, you know, I started out as an art historian writing about 16th century gardens. So once you start at gardens, you know, the, the leap to food isn't that uh, far. But I've always been interested in writing about food in a cultural context. Mm-hmm. And so how did you go from writing a blog to writing for um, big publications and then three books from that? Well, I actually started out writing for big publications. You know, I I was a journalist for 20 years and I was writing for, uh, you know, publications like The New York Times and Architectural Digest, Food and Wine, Bon Appetit. And I was writing books at the same time. And then I really started my blog late in my career about, I guess now almost 12 years ago. And and after writing my blog for a couple of years, I was approached by a publisher, St. Martin's, about doing a book about that blog. And that was my... I, I think it was my seventh book at, at that point. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you say the leap from gar- studying gardens to food isn't that huge of a leap, but um, how d- have you found that studying food or your understanding of spaces kind of influence the other? Like, is our experience of dining shaped by the space we inhabit? Well, um, for me, it's never just about the food. And um, I've always approached food in its context, whether that context is, you know, in a garden, whether that context is in a market or whether that context is in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. You know, I um, it's never just about the food itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how how does context shape the food? How does context shape? I think your enjoyment of it. I mean, at the end of the day, your, your food is something that you're eating. And I think that, you know, you can be eating in a three star restaurant. You can be eating at a road, you know, at a truck stop. And it has to do with how you're feeling, you know, what the space is. And that, at the end of the day, I think it's all very personal, but so it has to do with cultural context. You know, I'm, like, for instance, maybe you're on a Greek island and you have a glass of ouzo and it tastes, tastes wonderful. But then you take that bottle of ouzo home and it's, it tastes completely different depending mm-hmm. on where you are. Yeah, I think that's um, that's something I fall prey to when vacationing. I'm like, I need to bring all this food home and experience it in the same way, <laughs> but it's never quite the same. So... No, but that's why this is why this book is is a little bit different from my other books is that I try to provide recipes, but then I put them text so that you can, you know, even though I give you a recipe for, let's say, you know, zucchini parmigiana, um, I tell you that it's the kind of dish and where it's eaten and how it's eaten, what kind of dish it's actually eaten on. And so it provides you with a little bit of context so that even if you have to substitute ingredients, you have the background to the dish and, mm-hmm. and you're more likely to have a successful outcome. Yeah. So what are some of those elements that can contribute to our kind of visual and actual physical enjoyment of a dish? Well, like for me, for in my experience, uh, Italians, you know, take food very seriously, but they, but they always eat different ways at different times of the day. They eat different ways in different places in Italy. And so, you know, an Italian can have a, you know, a big meal at the beach on a Sunday, but then if he has a big meal in the city on a Sunday, it's a completely different thing. And um, so, it was very interesting for me to talk about, you know, what kind of plates people are using, you know, and different, and how that relates to uh, their enjoyment of the food and also the culture around it. So, for instance, if you're at a beach in Positano and you're eating off these beautifully colored plates, it, it, the, the plates are actually reflecting the colors of your setting. The blue is the same color as the sea. But then also the people making the plates actually are making them right down the road. And so there's a connection to everything, including the food that is on your plate. Totally, yeah. So for people who may not be in such beautiful spaces as you are in now, um, if they're looking to kind of craft um, a table that speaks to their locale, how would you suggest people go about studying the history or culture or traditions? Um, well, I mean, I can only speak from my personal experience and, and for instance, the meals that I presented, you know, I, I talk about beautiful ceramics, obviously, but then there's other things that you have to take into consideration, like say the lighting, you know, one of my favorite ways of eating are on the, these, you know, truck stops, for instance, and, and the lighting is, you know, a neon light and, and, you know, so sometimes this food, uh, is best eaten, say at a picnic table, you know in your backyard, you know, with, with barely any light. And you don't, you don't have to throw this fancy dinner party with the perfect china and, and different kinds of dishes go with different kinds of setting. And so if I give you the tools to, to sort of understand the way Italians go about, say, throwing a dinner party or a lunch or even stopping for a mid-morning piece, slice of pizza, I think that then you're, you can better recreate that 
in your own space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you suggest the ceramics to eat off of, um, maybe some linens, et cetera, et cetera. But you also, um, I read that you chose to photograph all the images in your book. And so how do you create the sense of space in your photographs? Well, it was really important for me. I, you know, originally, um, I had considered hiring a photographer uh, because I, the book was becoming rather big. It was a, a big format, uh, a book. And somehow I thought, oh, maybe, you know, I shouldn't be trying to write it and style it and photograph it. But since the meals took place over the course of, say, a year and a half, there was no way I could have a photographer with me. And one of the, the things that I really wanted to uh, do, as you point out, was was really recreate the space as I experienced it eating it and perhaps cooking it with the people that I was with. And the only way I could do that was to see it through my own eye. And so these meals were uh, photographed in real time. They were not set up in a studio. They were not set up in somebody's house. These were actually meals I was invited to or I attended. And as the meal went on, I was photographing it. And um, in much the same way, you know, people today use their iPhone. You know, I had a, a different kind of camera, but I was documenting it and really reporting on it and putting um, myself in the first person right there in front of the food. And I think that conveys itself really well in the photographs in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've talked on this show quite a bit about how um, the use and utility of cookbooks has changed quite a bit. And so how do you find your uh, how would you wish your cookbooks to be used? Or yeah, let's start there. Oh, well, my, my greatest uh, aim in this book is to get people to invite other people over to their house and, and have more dinner parties, have more lunches, have more friends around the table because, you know, eating in Italy is such a social experience. You know, rarely do you sit, you know, and, and eat alone. You you make it. It's, it's a every night is um, it's not a party, but you, you really celebrate food, whether, you know, you're, you're at the coffee shop and having a cappuccino or you're at home and you have six people over for dinner. And so I encourage people to do that. And the way that I do that is I, I understand a lot of people are scared to, to entertain these days because everybody's busy and, and nobody has time. But in the, each chapter, I actually give people a game plan to make mm-hmm. it a little to take a little bit of the stress out because mm-hmm. I think there should be no stress in entertaining. That's mm-hmm. my motto. Yeah. And so how do you then satiate your readers hunger is it simply enticing images or recipes or what do you think about when trying to get your your readers to host dinner parties well it's really funny you mentioned that because what i tried to aim for was was is almost a different reaction i'm getting from people because i i really the the book started out being the original title, I think, was the Italian Dinner Party Handbook. Hmm. So I really wanted it to be a handbook for people to entertain. And um, and what I get from a lot of people that not only do they, they see it as a sort of blueprint for dinner parties, but that they're excited to come themselves to Italy to experience these meals here, which was a side effect that I didn't really um, plan on. And so I think this inspirational element um, gets people even more excited to cook. So it's sort of like a circle. Mm-hmm. And that's an exciting point. Yeah. And so how do you think cookbooks, um, their reception and use have changed with the advent of social media as well? Well, I think that people really want to feel like they're there and that they can do it. I, I think that people, there are certain recipes we all see, you know, online, on Instagram that we know we can't replicate it or, or or maybe we think we can but but, but in reality you know we can't and i think that people what they're looking for at the end of the day is something that's really easy and something that looks fantastic and mm-hmm. something that is delicious so if you can hit those three points um i think that you're going to have people that, that really like what you're writing about it and all of my recipes i don't there's very 
few complicated recipes in my book. Mm -hmm. What is something you're cooking now when you want to take those three boxes? Um, well, for instance, tonight, as soon as we finish our conversation, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking here from Umbria, my house in Italy, in the countryside and having people over. And the dinner's actually been made for uh, a few hours. The table's already set. And I'm making a little uh, zucchini souffle with a, t a roasted tomato salad and then pasta. And the pasta sauce is literally sauteed sausage with cherry tomatoes on mm. pasta and that's dinner we're gonna have watermelon for dessert and, and so i'm you know about to go downstairs and make myself a negroni and the people you may guess will come in about 20 minutes so mm. i'm all set <laughs> this is meant to be eaten on heritage radio network we're going to take a short break This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Diane Stemple. And I'm Elena Santagade, and we're the hosts of Cutting the Curd here on Heritage Radio Network. Featuring interviews with makers and mongers and everybody in between, this show is a downright funky look at the world of artisan cheese. You can find Cutting the Curd wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. So we were just talking about Elizabeth's dinner plans tonight, but let's get back to what we were talking about at the start of the show, which is the intersection or the influence of space on our tasting of food. And so why do you think space is so central to our experience of food? Like how might picnic food taste different in a picnic uh, setting versus in a fine dining restaurant? Well, I think there, it all matters if you're comfortable or not. Mm. And, you know, I might find myself more comfortable in a picnic setting and you might find yourself more comfortable, you know, at a three-star restaurant. And, and I think that's true and it's all personal, but, but it really comes down to comfort. And I think your comfort has to do with your architectural space as well as the people who are around you. And if... Uh, and from my point of view, from entertaining, um, I think that the most important thing that you can give your guests is a sense of welcome. And they definitely, what you want to avoid is a sense of anxiety and stress. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I keep harping back to that, but, but, you know, when you're going into somebody's home, I think that, you know, first of all, it's your home, so it should feel warm and welcoming. And, um, and the way that you can do that is, is to sort of tone down the stress level of entertaining. Mm -hmm. So how is it or why is it that maybe more expensive or um, three-star restaurants might kind of encourage that sense of austerity or seriousness? What, what do they gain from having customers be put in that setting? Well, I think, first of all, you have the... Um, the price you're paying for the meal immediately installs a sense of respect. Mm. I mean, I think that anybody who's paying, you know, for an, for an expensive meal, you sort of, you know, have this, uh, the, the sort of all of the 
uh, traditional cultural uh, overtones or that, you know, you should be formal, you should, you, you know, you shouldn't laugh too much, you should, you should, you know, be focused on the food. Um, and then, you know, there's all the, the, the stereotypical uh, rules, you know, that those kind of restaurants have to play by. Whereas, you know, you're much more in your, in your own home, you're more free to create the space uh, that, you know, that you, that you feel comfortable with. You know, for instance, I feel comfortable with, um, you know, the, the lighting is very important to me. Other people are less attuned to lighting. So I think you have to find your own sort of way to manipulate your space to make it uh, a place that you're comfortable in. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've noticed this as well, but I feel like many restaurants generate buzz solely on ambiance or decor alone. And it's less and less about, you know, going to the place with the best pizza, with, but more like going to this place that makes you feel X, Y, and Z. And so how do you think um, designers or restaurant owners are approaching opening with this mindset? Well, I think that I think that uh, more and more recently, the um, the element of sound and mm. acoustics is something that the, the restaurant designers are becoming more focused on. Finally, you know, uh, whether it's to create a sort of a literal cacophony, you know, of sound which appeals to certain people, or to create a place where you can actually talk to other people. And um, you know, there's certain restaurants that do both of those things and I think that that's becoming more and more intentional and affecting the space as well in a way that you, that's not immediately evident mm-hmm. yeah, and so I guess what I'm trying to get at is I feel like more and more people are holding down tables at restaurants and that's kind of serving as the urbanites way of hosting and I was wondering if there how did that come about um, and how restaurants if that's kind of expected when opening a restaurant now? You mean the people are entertaining their friends at a restaurant rather than at home? Yeah, I feel like it's more common now to say, I'm going to this place, I'm going to get this table for two or three hours and you can come and go as you please. And I thought that was really odd because it it kind of breaks a lot of the rules of traditional. Yeah, no, that's something I've never heard of. So I have very, I don't have any experience Ah, with that. Okay, I'll keep reporting. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so also while far from a trend, it feels like more and more people, as you said, are interested in hosting dinner parties, but are also kind of anxious about it. And so what does the dinner party suggest and what kind of itch does hosting scratch for people? Well, I think, as you said, you know, social media has a lot to do with it. Mm. And it looks like everybody in the world is having these beautiful people over to beautiful meals at their houses. And and I think that is inspirational. And I think it's even though, you know, sometimes that seems out of reach. I think a lot of the uh, the best uh, of the people who are sharing those kind of experiences are are encouraging people to do this at home. And um, and I think they're it's a very rewarding experience. Experience. It's creating something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so what is it? I think that that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, what is it about these dinner parties that are so enticing to see on social media? What about them gets us cooking or hosting? Oh, I think that I think exactly the point that it's like I can do that too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think if you, if you see a you know beautiful in um you know a three-star restaurant uh that's not necessarily attainable but if you see somebody in their backyard you know with their dinner set and and their kids are running around and they're grilling and even though you know maybe it's on the perfect scale of you know off the scale on you know perfectness uh there's more of a sense that i can do that mm-hmm. and i think it becomes more accessible and as more people you know look like they're entertaining at home i think more people 
do entertain at home. Yeah, I do think there is this really fine line, though, between seeing these images or reading about um, beautiful travels online and feeling inspired versus feeling intimidated or excluded. I mean, so how do you find your readers are reading your blog or your your book and are inspired to create on their own? Um, I guess also, I, on social media, I'm always showing the mistakes as well. <laughs> and, you know, like I, I talk to my readers and it's always amazes me that no matter uh, what I cook online and especially when I, when I show the process on my Instagram stories, Within hours, people are sending me pictures that they made the same thing, hmm. wow. and um, and so it, that's very rewarding. And I think the people, you know, if they feel that you are accessible and if you respond to them and and um, and give them advice and and really cheer them on, that uh, they're more likely to try more and more complicated things, you know, until they're hosting their own dinner party. Mm-hmm. What is the purpose or utility of travel writing for you? What 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 does it serve for you for cr- to create this content, and how do you wish for it to be consumed? Oh, well, very. I, my greatest desire in writing about travel is to get people to go to the places that really need it. You know, I live in Rome. Rome does not need more tourists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, nor does Florence or Venice. Um, so, although I have written about those places and I continue to do so, I do the I do it in a way that gets people out of the center. You know, you don't need more people on the Grand Canal in Venice, you know, coming in on cruise ships. What you need is people going, say, to the back roads of Puglia and searching out, you know, the things that uh, maybe you're not going to run into other tourists. They might be a little bit more difficult to get to. But once you're there, you're not only having a more authentic experience, you're also bringing... Um, you know, euros or dollars to place people that really need them to keep these traditions going. And that, to me, more and more is what travel writing is about. Mm -hmm. And what are you working on now? Right now, I'm taking the summer off and I'm working on nothing. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, This is the the first summer I've had in about... uh, 20 years where I wasn't working on a book. Mm-hmm. So I am just working on my uh, planning more tours. I have a gas, a culinary tour company mm-hmm. and I'm currently uh, exploring the possibility of doing tours in Sicily and in Tuscany. I currently do them in Puglia, in Rome and in Umbria. And so I've been doing a lot of research, you know, visiting food producers and farms and, and cooks and and really putting together some great itineraries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll let you get back to your summer and your dinner party. Thank you so much for joining me today, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.